If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. Last Sunday, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 5. And for somebody who had never read the book of Nehemiah before, chapter 5 might in fact be quite shocking. Because up to this point, one would imagine that the Jews are the victims. They rally under tremendous leadership of Nehemiah. They manage to fend off all opposition. And then we find out there are actually problems among the Jews. There are problems within the population where one segment of the population is basically ripping off and taking advantage treating unjustly another segment of the population. And this is quite unexpected. We expected them to be all on the same page. They would all be together. They would be united. And they were in the building of the wall. But in other matters, they were not. We know about the trouble with Jerusalem. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned. We know about the opposition and the difficulties they face. What we don't know until we come to chapter 5 is, in fact, there are real problems within the community itself. At least four problems. The first we saw was a food shortage. This is in chapter 5, if you want to look at that, in verse 2. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to stay alive, or eat and stay alive, we must get grain. There was a a food shortage. And people have speculated as to why there was a food shortage. We do know in the next verse that there was a famine. And so Nehemiah is told, we must get grain. We need food. The second problem is they are mortgaging whatever they own in order to get food. In verse 3, others are saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So some, in order to get food to feed their families, have to mortgage what they own, the fields, vineyards, homes. The third problem is they have to borrow money to pay the taxes to the king. Verse 4, still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So it's not bad enough that they're trying to stay alive to eat. They also have to pay their taxes in the meantime. Some have suggested that the taxes were onerous. It was very burdensome. We're not even told that. You know, if you don't have any money and you have to pay a dollar, that's still a lot. And so we don't know how much the tax was. The fact is they didn't have the money to do it. So there's a food shortage due to the famine. They are mortgaging property to get food. They are borrowing money to pay their taxes. But all of this points to the real problem, and that is, well, they're being ripped off. The fourth problem we see is that they are losing property and children. They are selling their children into slavery in order to pay what they owe. Verse 5. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, Yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. If you think about it, on the one hand, this situation sort of makes sense because the land is owned by the Jews. It cannot be sold to Gentiles. So if somebody is going to lend you money against property, it's going to have to be a fellow Jew. They're surrounded by people who don't like them, so it's unlikely that they would lend them money anyway. So this economic problem is within the community. It's Jews and Jews. Jews are borrowing money from their fellow Jews. What we do not expect is that some people are taking advantage of others. And in verse number 6, we see Nehemiah's response. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Verse 7. 
I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your countrymen, your own countrymen. The ESV has the word interest here. That is to say they are loaning money to their, to their fellow Jews, but they are charging interest. Everything else up to this point has been legal. Yes, you can sell your children into slavery. You can sell yourself into slavery. You can mortgage your property. This is all legal by Mosaic law. But it is against Mosaic law to charge a fellow Jew interest on any type of loan. Exodus 22:25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a moneylender. Charge him no interest. And apparently the nobles and the officials, the people who have money, are in fact doing that. I'm reminded of a passage in James chapter 4 in this regard. James writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And I say, what is the connection with our passage in Nehemiah? Well, I think what strikes me is how strong the language is, where James talks about fights and quarrels, you battle, you kill. The King James has the words war and fightings. I don't think James means this literally. But within the Christian congregations, there have been conflicts that he puts on the scale using the metaphor of war. I think we could do the same thing with what's happening in Jerusalem and Judah at this point, that Jews are abusing they are abusing their fellow men, their fellow Jews, and what it's all about money. It's all about gain. Why wouldn't you freely loan money without interest? Why would you not obey God unless, in fact, you want to make more money? Instead of acting with compassion, the nobles and officials are guilty of breaking God's law and abusing their brothers and sisters. And this is unacceptable. So Nehemiah calls a meeting of the nation, basically. And he tells the officials, this is what you're going to do. You're going to stop charging interest. You're going to give back all the collateral, that the land that has been mortgaged. And you're going to give back the interest that has been paid. And the people say, we will do as you say. And Nehemiah's like, Nehemiah's like yeah, I think I'm going to need to see that. I, I'm not going to take your word for it. They must swear an oath before the priest. And then he shakes his robes and says, May God do this to anyone who doesn't keep his oath. By the way, I mentioned this last week. The only place in the Old Testament where you're supposed to swear an oath before a priest is when you've been accused of adultery. And you say, No, I have not. Well, you have to swear before the priest. This is serious business. And Nehemiah wants to make clear that it is. Two more things and then we'll be done with chapter 1. First of all, and I mentioned this last week, Nehemiah himself was loaning money to people. He wasn't charging interest, but he was loaning money as well. 
And I think his conscience was stricken by this, and he's like, we've got to stop loaning. We should start giving. We should, in fact, be generous to our brothers and sisters. In the end of the chapter, we read of Nehemiah's example, how he did not take what he could legally take as the governor, but in fact was generous and giving to others. Today we come to chapter 6, and we return basically to the theme of opposition. And in this chapter, we find at least four different schemes or strategies employed by their enemies and how Nehemiah responds to that. And I think in Nehemiah's responses, there is much that can instruct us. The first weapon, the first scheme, if you wish, is deceit. I originally had thought to use the word subterfuge, but I came to the conclusion that such a word is really too polite to describe what the enemies are doing. It is, in fact, all out-and-out deceit. Look, if you would, at verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. At this point in the project, there are no gaps in the walls. They have filled in all the gaps on the walls, but the gates are not yet in place. And so, in a sense, they are still vulnerable to attack. Sanballat from the north and Geshem, the Arab from the south, send a message to Nehemiah. And I think to the casual observer, you might say, it's like they're saying, okay, you win, you've built the walls, um, let's get together, let's work this out, let's not continue this cold war, because it might break out into a hot war, so let's just meet together and negotiate and get everything taken care of. So you pick the place, which is really interesting, because they actually pick the place. (laughs) On the plain of Ono, there are a number of villages, but let's meet there. And then you pick whatever village you want. Well, that's 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And it's much, much closer to Sanballat. It's stone's throw from Samaria. Um, I think if they really wanted to talk to him, they would come to Jerusalem. But Nehemiah sees through it and he recognizes they, in fact, intended to do him harm. It would have taken Nehemiah, by the way, a day to get there. It means he's a day away from Jerusalem and a day away from any type of help or any kind of rescue. He rightly suspects that there will be foul play, but he has no way to prove it. If he questions their motives, then he might be accused of not acting in good faith. It might, in fact, make them more angry than they are already, and he will make a bad situation worse. So what Nehemiah does is he basically says, I can't come. I'm busy. I'm involved with a great project. Why should I stop? Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? He doesn't openly question their motives. His response, I think, is quite logical. It's quite reasonable. The project's not finished. It would make sense after the project is finished that we meet. But you know, I'm in the middle of things here, uh, and I can't come down. I think a sincere person would understand that. It's like you're right. You're still busy. When you get done, let's meet. Uh, But they're not sincere. 
As I said, if they were sincere, they would have come to him. Instead, they send the same, same message four times. They're really trying to pressure him into meeting with them in a location of their choice. And he responds the same way each time. I think we need to understand that Nehemiah could have attacked their motives. He could have accused them of insincerity. He does not. He allows their actions, in fact, to to reveal their intent. When it becomes evident that Nehemiah is not going to leave town, he's not going to leave Jerusalem and then be uh, vulnerable to attack or assassination, they go to strategy number two. And this is found in verses 5 through 9. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter, in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I think you could see where someone might say, yeah, why are they rebuilding the walls? And they could sort of put one and one together and and say, the Jews are about to revolt. They're going to build a wall and so they can hold off any type of siege against them. Why rebuild the wall? What, what's the deal? You're in, you're in the Persian Empire. There are no enemies within. So why are you rebuilding the wall? Rumors are flying around among the nations. The Jews are rebuilding their capital. And Geshem believes them to be true. It's one of those, one of those aside. Yeah, and he says it's true, so it must be true. There's a plan to revolt. Nehemiah will become king. And he already has preachers. He already has prophets going out saying, listen... We have a king in Judah. Prophecies are being fulfilled. We will have a new king. The letter implies that they know that this is in fact not the case. But the king won't know that. And so they're out to protect Nehemiah's reputation. They don't want him to get into trouble. So come on, let's, let's get together and let's, let's talk about these things. They seek to pressure Nehemiah partially out of fear because if the king finds out, you'll really be in trouble. By making it an open letter, an unsealed letter, it means anybody and everybody can read it and the message will get out that the Jews are going to revolt. How does he respond? Verse number 8. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. Now, first of all, he denies the accusation, just making it up. Secondly, he rightly assesses the situation. Verse 9, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. And the third thing he does, which we would come to expect of Nehemiah, but I prayed, now strengthen our hands. This man of prayer knows that his response is not only a letter to send to them, but to pray to the God of heaven. So that doesn't work. Now the third scheme in verses 10 through 14. This I think we would call an inside job with an intent to destroy Nehemiah's reputation. Verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple 
and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a real bad, a bad name to discredit me. We know two things about Shemaiah. He claimed to be a prophet, verse number 10, he prophesied. And secondly, he was hired by their enemies, Tobiah and Sanballat. There are several things we may assume, we're not told. The first is that Nehemiah knew him, and, and probably pretty well, because he is shut in in his house. It may be because of illness, that's what I suspect it was. And so Nehemiah goes to visit him. He goes to visit his friend. Also implied is that the message is couched in the, the language of this is a message from God. This isn't just friendly advice from Shemaiah. He prophesied this message to Nehemiah in verse number 12. We also will see that other prophets had tried to intimidate and frighten Nehemiah, claiming to speak on behalf of God. This is no small thing. I could digress here a moment. To speak on behalf of God is an awesome responsibility. And awesome not, not as in cool, but as a, a tremendous and fearsome task. If you read the scriptures and if you look at the history of the church, it seems, as those, it seems that those who are sent by God, who are truly sent by God, are almost overwhelmed with the responsibility that they've been given. On the other hand, those who claim to speak for God but don't seem almost fearless about it. They seem quite courageous. Yet those who truly do speak for God are quite humble and one might even say fearful. One of the great preachers of the 19th century in London, Charles Spurgeon, was known as an energetic and enthusiastic preacher in contrast to the Victorian style. He actually moved his hands when he was speaking, raised his voice. Um, very few people knew, and probably only a handful, the deacons of his church knew, that before every sermon, Spurgeon was in the back room, he would vomit. He would throw up. It was because of his sense of the awesome task that he was about to perform, to preach the very word of God. He would come out looking so pale. And his deacons didn't understand it, that their pastor was a nervous wreck when he got in the pulpit. Whenever they had a guest speaker, the guest speaker seemed Ill at ease, or very much at ease, very relaxed, and yet their own pastor seemed to be so, so nervous about it. I think Spurgeon understood better than most, if not many, that to preach the word of God is an awesome responsibility. The Bible has a lot to say about false prophets, I think more than we realize, and we should take them to heart. Anyway, this false prophet tells Nehemiah that there is about to be an attempt on his life. Apparently God has given Shemaiah this inside information. And that the solution to this is that the two of them should go to the temple and lock the doors and keep themselves safe in the temple. Again, I think that 
a casual observer would say, he's looking out for him. He's looking out for the leader. He wants to protect his life. Uh, but there's, there are real problems with this advice. Real problems with it. First of all, why would Nehemiah at this point go to the temple? He should have done that at the very beginning if he was afraid for his life. The Lord, isn't, in fact, watched over him. Secondly, it does not make sense that the Lord would tell Nehemiah to do something that is against the law, God's law. Only the Levites, only the priests can go into the temple. Nobody else. And Nehemiah is not a Levite. So basically, Shemaiah is saying, God told you to do something you shouldn't do to protect your life. Well, yeah, there's... No, this is not what is to be done. By the way, there's also something else implied here, and that is that somehow the temple has magical powers. If you're in the temple, you'll be safe. Well, why not just go to any house and lock yourself in? Verse number 13 tells us he had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. Then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Because what would the people think? Our leaders locked himself in the temple. This is a man who tells us to trust in God and he's run away to the temple. He's He's desecrated the temple and now he's hiding in the temple. So what does Nehemiah do? Verse 14, what we would expect. He prays, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. It's a very powerful thing to say, this is what the Lord says. And these prophets have been doing that to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the Lord says, this is what you're supposed to do. He is the leader, and yet they are giving him bad advice. They're false prophets. Well, in spite of the opposition, the work continues. And then if you look at verse number 15, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. This is quite remarkable. This immense task they finished in a little over seven weeks. Even the enemies recognize how impressive this is. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard this and all the surrounding nations were all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. This is not merely a human enterprise. God had been with them. So the enemies give up, right? No, it continues from within and without. And so the fourth strategy I call miscellaneous. If you look in verses 17 through 19, it's a mixed bag of schemes. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehoahanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. At least four things here. First of all, many of the nobles under Nehemiah are in contact with the enemy, with Tobiah, the Ammonite. They are under oath to him, and we don't know all that this involves. But we do know that he is, in fact, related to some of the Jews. Uh, He is the son-in-law, and his son has married a Jewess. 
We also know that the nobles tell Nehemiah what a good guy Tobiah is. They really try to build him up. He's really misunderstood. He's really a good guy. And then they go back to Tobiah and report everything that Nehemiah had to say. And then in the last sentence we see, Tobiah is not actually that good of a guy, is he? He sends letters to intimidate Nehemiah. We will come back to this in chapter 13. Uh, Just to give you a preview, the time will come when Nehemiah will go back because he's working with the king. And after a period of time, he comes back to Jerusalem. And guess what? He finds out that Tobiah is living in one of the rooms of the temple. I mean, if Nehemiah wouldn't go into the temple as a Jew, what is this Ammonite doing? Um, It says, a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as contributions for the priests. He's basically living in the treasury. And Nehemiah will deal with that when we come to it. So, these are the difficulties. How does Nehemiah respond? But more, what can we learn from it? I don't think our lives have been threatened. We may or may not have had people to deliberately and maliciously try to malign us, to destroy our reputation, our credibility, I think we can still learn from Nehemiah. The first thing is we must be wise in how we respond. This, I think, begins with not counter-attacking. And when somebody says something bad against us, that we will respond in kind and that we will question their motives. For this, I think in this regard, perhaps we face a greater temptation than people before us. Because with the rise of modernity came a belief that much, if not all things, could be understood, particularly people's motives. I think in the modern age, we have come to believe that we know why people do what they do. Marx tells us it's all about money. Freud tells us it's all about sex. Nietzsche tells us it's all about power. And what people truly think, psychoanalysis, will open their hearts up and we will know why they do what they do. One of the things I think it's worth noting about the 19th century, where the modern age really comes into its own in this sense that we can understand why people are doing what they're doing, is people make the mistake of saying, well, in the 19th century, belief in God began to be pushed aside. People became atheists. You have Darwinism, you have Marxism, and they pretty much sort of push aside any belief in God. Somebody that I've been reading recently and Mars Hill Audio Journal has had an interview with a man who translated his work into English, a man named Augusto Del Noce. He was an Italian political thinker and philosopher. And he argues, and I think brilliantly, that what happened in the 19th century is not that people pushed aside belief in God. They pushed aside belief in sin. They pushed aside the belief in original sin. And, and you see that not just in unbelievers, among believers. Charles Finney, one of the, known as the great evangelists in the early part of the 19th century, said that we are not born with original sin and that if you fed your kids graham crackers, they would never sin. 
I like graham crackers, but that's not going to solve the problem. If you do not believe that we are born into this world contaminated by sin, then your, your perspective is going to be all skewed. And then you can come to believe, I can understand, I know why you did what you did. And then we have all these tools, you know, from Marx and Nietzsche and Freud and all this. And so somehow we think that we know why people do what they do. Um, when people attack us, we must be wise and we must not counterattack. But neither should we say, yeah, I know exactly why that person did that. Because when we are doing that, I think in one sense we are sinning, but more than that, we're being quite modern. We're assuming that we have insight into other people's hearts. Under being wise, we should also be patient. We should be patient. And I think eventually their motives may be revealed. Perhaps not in our lifetime. That's fine. It doesn't all have to happen before I die. Um, but we should just be patient. But there are fewer things harder to do than to wait, especially when we feel like we've been maligned and people have spoken unjustly against us. But we must trust that God knows all things. We see this with Nehemiah. He prays. God knows exactly what's going on. And we must wait. And then under being wise, we must listen to Scripture. Peter is so helpful here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. But in your heart, set, up, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. The answer is not to respond in kind. It is to live the lives that bring glory to God. We should live good lives. Secondly, we are, we are to be wise, but secondly, I think we are to be bold. We are to be bold in response to rumors, but again, never seeking to take revenge. We may deny false accusations outright, but I think to do so with a sensitive and non-defensive response. And here, again, from Peter, he points to the Lord Jesus as our example. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We may be bold, and yet at the same time, we are to entrust ourselves to God. We should pray as Nehemiah did, for strength to endure the anxiety, the difficulty, the stress that may come when false things are said about us. And beyond this, we should pray for those who speak against us, rather they do, whether they do it intentionally or unintentionally. When rumors are spread about us, we can deny them, but I think we should also pray for those 
who speak these words. And lastly, we must not allow fear to cloud our perspective, our thinking, and cause us to act impulsively, to do something foolish. You may remember when we went through the series on evil, we saw a three-step progression. This is actually from N.T. Wright. The first step is that most of us, I don't know if I should say most of us, but many people live as though evil does not exist. Secondly, they are shocked when in fact it comes into their lives. And so thirdly, they respond in immature and reckless ways. See, let's go back to the 19th century. If you get rid of the notion of original sin, and then people do horrendous things. Look at the 20th century, genocide left and right. You're like, oh my goodness, how can these people act this way? Well, if in fact you believed in original sin, you would remember that the first person ever born into this world became a murderer. So when people do violence against other people, you're not shocked. I think we should be grieved, but we should not be shocked. But when we allow this to create fear, it clouds our thinking. And then we, in fact, may not respond as we should. So we should be wise, we should be bold, and we must not allow fear to cloud our thinking. I was thinking as I was preparing the sermon, yeah, Damon, this is all well and good. I'm not sure I'm going to make it out of this building today without breaking what I've just said. I think it is human nature to want to respond in kind. It is human nature, particularly as modern people, to judge people's motives. I know why you did that. And I think it is human nature to respond out of fear and not do the right thing. So what is the answer? I've I've told you what to do. Uh, To be honest, on our own, we cannot. We must look to God in prayer. And that's what we see in Nehemiah time after time after time. God, give us the grace to be wise, to be bold, and to not be fearful. Because on our own, we are not capable. But if God gave Nehemiah the grace, let's ask that in fact he would do the same for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we freely confess that there's a part of our hearts that almost lives for revenge. We love it when people get payback. And yet when we look at the Lord Jesus, we see this is not the example we are to follow. And we look at Nehemiah under attack, and yet wisely and boldly and not fearfully, he responds and he prays. May we be people of prayer. And as Paul tells us to pray without ceasing as we go through the day, as we face each situation, may we have an awareness that you're there with us. And when people say things that are false about us, obviously can bring pain, but you know what is right. You know all things. And may we trust you. Being people of this place and time, we tend to think we know more than we do. 
And we also tend to think that we can take care of things on our own. We feel so self-sufficient. I thank you for the example of Nehemiah. And by your grace, may we follow We pray for Zib and the baby. Due date is this week on the 13th. Give her strength, the baby as well, the doctor's wisdom to have a safe delivery. Pray for Oscar and for Ezra as well as they welcome a new member into their family. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.